0: Welcome to kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond.
1: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
0: Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Reality winner, the NSA whistleblower serving time for her document leak has tested positive for COVID-19 at the federal prison where she's being held. More than 500 other prisoners have also tested positive at FMC Carswell in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. FMC Carswell includes the only women's hospital in the federal system and is also infamous for its high security communications management unit where Marius Mason and other political prisoners have previously been held. In the Briscoe facility in Texas, 90 prisoners staged an uprising earlier this week in response to the curtailment of access to communications and other resources. Tensions have been rising across the Texas state prison system as COVID-19 spreads. Prisoners took one guard hostage but eventually released him. Despite this, they were still tear gassed repeatedly inside the facility afterwards. Prisoners inside the Lane County Jail in Oregon are on their fifth week of hunger strike, risking permanent damage to their organs in order to press demands for COVID-19 safety. Their demands are courts release all pretrial and medically vulnerable detainees, the right to a fair and speedy trial as guaranteed by the Constitution, greatly diminished bail bonds, the right for all those detained to in-person, behind glass, social visits with friends and family. The right for all of those detained to in-person visits with lawyers, the behest of detainees or their lawyers. Access to religious services for all those detained. Outside supporters report that administrators are close to giving in and guards are beginning to wear masks, but the strike is continuing in order to maintain pressure. The second case of COVID-19 has also emerged among prisoners. Updates and support information can be found on Twitter via EUG hunger strike.
1: Researchers at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health have found that in U.S. prisons, the rates of infection with and death from COVID-19 are much higher than in the general population. In fact, the number of prisoners who tested positive for COVID-19 was 5.5 times higher than in those in the general population. The researchers found that the prison infection rate was 3,251 cases per 100,000 inmates, whereas the rate in the general population was around 587 cases per 100,000. The analysis also found that the death rates in prisons were 39 per 100,000 inmates versus 29 per 100,000 in the general population. Lead author Brendan Soliner, associate professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Bloomberg School said, quote, While these numbers are striking, we actually think the disparities are much greater. End quote. According to Soliner, some prisons aren't reporting cases and others aren't testing prisoners. In California, more than 2,200 prisoners are infected. More than half are in San Quentin State Prison.
0: We now hear the second part of a conversation with Christina Byers and Anastasia Schmid. Schmid is an award-winning formerly incarcerated scholar who went to extraordinary lengths to complete her education on the inside. We last heard Schmid describe the effect on her when Ball State University, where she was attending while inside the Indiana Women's Prison, did not renew its contract with the Indiana Department of Corrections.
1: Her only way to finish her degree preserve years of work that would otherwise be lost and get two years of good time off her sentence was to complete 27 credit hours of work in a single semester while serving time in prison.
0: We'll hear more from both of them about the barriers that prisoners often face while seeking education during incarceration. You can hear the first part of this conversation on our website, wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. And now back to Christina and Anastasia.
2: Can you tell me a a little bit about what that final semester was like doing 27 credit (laughs) hours I mean I can't fathom doing 27 credit hours even in a perfect I guess situation where I'm only doing school my classes and no one is bothering me and I'm just in the zone so tell me in the environment that you were in uh, what that was like and then What other things? I I think you had some other things that were major going on at the same time. So I'll let you talk about that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so although this was a day and age inside the prison where we were allowed multiple classifications, um, which, you know, as time went on, they would not allow you to go to school and work. It was one or the other. Uh, Back in this time period, uh, we're circa 2006 right now, Uh, It was pretty much whatever you could handle doing, they were going to let you do. So I was working a full-time job in the prison. Uh, Forty hours a week, I was working in the cosmetology department. And yeah, in that very uh, final semester, I was also studying for my state board exams to obtain my cosmetology license. So I've got state board exams going on for cosmetology, which was indeed my full-time day job and then I was going to college all night long so when I tell you that I didn't sleep for about three months I'm not joking (laughs) Uh, I was working around the clock either working at actual physical work on site, being in class or studying, it was nonstop. And, I mean, we joke about it now uh, for people who are familiar with what goes on in prison. You have what's known as count time several times a day that they're making sure nobody's gotten out and they're making sure all the people are there that are supposed to be there. And those counts last anywhere from 10 minutes to 45 minutes, depending. I cannot tell you how many college papers I wrote during account time because I did not have any other time to write them. So I'm writing papers during count, I'm cramming for tests during count, I, you know, I'm trying to read through 50 and 100 page chapters in my book, uh, all in these little itty bitty window of time in between work and formal classes in school. And really, count
2: time, does that prove to be uh, the only time where you actually got time you could focus on your work, really? Because it's actually quiet or supposed to, in theory, be quiet, depending on what facility you're at, what, yeah. how they enforce those rules. But typically, a count time would be the only time you would experience
3: near silence or at least quiet within a prison. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think it's funny because, you know, in the norm – prison life. People dread count, like, oh, God, the disruption of life. We have to be on our bunks and it's count time. And I can remember praying, please, God, do not let them get the count right today. (laughs) So I have extra time to study and get my work done in quiet, you know, and just some peace. So uh, the environment is very chaotic. It's very much non-conducive to studying and trying to um, advance yourself in any kind of way. Uh, staff is very oppositional to people, especially people who are choosing to utilize their time uh, in education and other productive pursuits. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're really fighting an uphill battle to get a degree in that environment. Would you say um,
2: that the education department, as they call it, this, this space where you're able to pursue your education, that is often separate from the, the custody way of, of handling things. So would you, would you say that having access to an education building where, where you were able to study did help some, even though there were
3: limited time periods where you could use that space? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it creates a different culture, a different environment within what it, most of the time is very oppositional. Um, type of living circumstance so you know the culture of education in the prison and being in that setting you know you were surrounded by other people who were working towards the common goal who were trying to best use the time that they had you know there's that age-old adage do the time don't let the time do you and I mean education is paramount in that if you are going to do the time this is the way to do the time um, you know, there, there's time almost seems not to really exist while you're in the heart of education and you're working on something. So much of your energy and your mental focus and your entire life day to day is structured around your classes and the work you have to do and studying for exams and uh, preparing papers and presentations. You know, you don't have time to be a part of all the rest of the nonsense. So, yeah, there's absolutely a culture involved in it too. And, um, you know, I would not have wanted to be a part of any other culture other than that.
2: Wow. Well said.
3: Um, so you have, let's go back to
2: this, this semester. So after this whirlwind of a semester, you completed, you, you got your bachelor's degree and your cosmetology license. Let's, let's mention that. Um, then what happens? It's That's in 2006. Then Oakland City University came in and some students were able to transfer or start over there. Um, But for you, your education or access to it kind of ended fairly abruptly with that semester. Can you talk about when and how it was reintroduced into your life?
3: Yes. So yeah, I mean, you know, here's this amazing accomplishment, Uh, you know, I mean, against all odds, I graduate a four-year degree in three years. I graduated summa cum laude. I had some of the most amazing professors in the world that I was working with, people that talked to me about doing research projects with me and extending my scholarship, and God, I could taste grad school at that point in time, and no, not an option. Uh, there's no more opportunity for higher education. And there you are sitting in prison. At that point in time, I was still facing about a decade and a half on my sentence. So what in the heck are you supposed to do with your time now? Uh, You know, so... I carried on with other random vocational programs that might have been available, you know, just something trying to stay focused, trying to stay productive. But yeah, there was no more opportunity for higher education. And I believe it was somewhere around 2011, 2012, when that grant money that Indiana had for higher education completely was discontinued so at that point all of the women who were still in programs with oakland city everybody lost everything i mean they came in one day and literally in one day said guess what no more college ladies they packed up the computers the books the labs the everything just packed it up and walked straight out the door it didn't make any difference where those women were in their education they lost everything so um, as i previously mentioned it was the loss of credits No more opportunity for a degree because unlike when Oakland came in and people had a possibility to transfer, there's no more possibility to transfer. College is just gone, period. Mm -hmm. So you're not doing anything with those credits. You're not getting a degree. And then whatever earned time credit people might have been counting on for those degrees, that wasn't a possibility either so the devastation of a loss and i mean really probably one of the most hardcore realities not only are you not getting a degree and you no longer have anything positive and productive to focus on with this prison time guess what you get to spend additional years in prison now because you will not earn that time to get out early
2: And you mentioned something. A lot of people that were enrolled in college were really working towards something and and perhaps towards something they never thought they would have been able to accomplish before. So you've got people, women who before prison perhaps didn't even think that they would ever see themselves inside of a classroom um, at a university. And, And now here they are excelling and they're, Dreaming of possibilities that they never would have imagined uh, for themselves or for their for their families. So,
3: in an instant, that's that's all lost. I, it's it, it's almost difficult to talk about without getting emotional. The psychological devastation of this was uh, there aren't even words to describe what I witness these women go through at this time. I mean, it was absolutely horrific uh, uh, in every sense of the word. And, um, you know, I mean, at that moment in time, it was a really hopeless, dark, devastating time. I mean, just across the board, you could feel the entire energy change inside that. But I mean, it's not a great place to begin with. Let's not get that confused. But I mean, at that point in time, it was dark and oppressive, and heavy, and my God, what are we all going to do now? And, you know, so no other opportunity comes in until somewhere in the midst of 2012, after this devastation has happened, uh, Dr. Kelsey Kaufman comes into the prison uh, with this notion that she believed that people in prison were hungry for education, And that people would go after that education, even if there wasn't a time cut, even if there wasn't a degree, they would do it for the sake of education alone. And because she had good rapport with the administration at the facility, and because she had the connection she had, she managed to start a higher education program once again inside IWP with zero funding, no backing from the state other than saying, sure, you can come in the prison and have the time and space. Uh, no books, no materials, no computers, no degree sitting out there, no possibility of time cut for these women, nothing. Just, here you go, offer whatever classes you want, and, you know, they can take them if they want to, but that's all they're getting, and we're not giving you any help at all whatsoever. You better figure out how you're getting books, materials, and computers, because we shan't be providing them for you. So, Um, For anyone who doesn't know, uh, somebody needs to give Dr. Kaufman a cape because she's absolutely superwoman. Uh, She did that. She found professors at several different universities willing to volunteer their time, willing to donate their resources, and we started a higher education program inside the prison Uh, For myself and Michelle Jones and several other women who were graduate students uh, already, who had basically been sitting on idle time at that point in time, uh, we were all pulled in to help as kind of teaching assistants and tutors to the undergrads. And, uh, you know, in the midst of this, Dr. Kaufman decides she wants to start the History Project. Okay. let And and I'm glad you brought the
2: History Project up because that really led to um, doors being open for you. Can you talk a little bit about how the history project was born, what it was, and and what it's become?
3: Yeah. Okay, so we started out in what was theoretically going to be a one semester class uh, predominantly for undergraduate students to learn about history and learning about historical research. And Dr. Kaufman had this lofty idea that because we had the records from the very institution we were in for its first roughly 15 years of existence that we were going to use those documents as our primary sources to learn about history, learn about researching history, and guess what, we were going to write a book in one semester. (laughs) Because the history is that IWP is the very first women's prison in the country and that these two amazing Quaker feminist reformers started this prison for women and it was wonderful. They were saving women's lives. Great things were happening. And yes, we're going to read these documents and we're going to expand this feel-good history about the Indiana Women's Prison. And, you know, as I said, myself and Michelle, uh, Leslie, Kim, several other women who already had our degrees and really didn't have anything else to do at that time, we came in as assistants to the undergrads and joined the History Project, I mean, really for something to do, something positive, something productive to do. And very, very, very early on, we realized that that history was not at all what anybody had been led to believe, and uh, it changed the course of everything. Wow. Wow. Um, and, I, and I'm sure you could, you could go on and on
2: about what you actually uncovered, and, and we're definitely going to have to do uh, another edition at some point about that. But can you talk about how working in that project and in that space, um, the people that gave you access to Uh, what you were able to participate in that led to you pursuing higher education.
3: Okay. Beyond your bachelor's degree, of course. Right. So there we were with all these documents, all these primary resources. Then we had professors willing to bring us in all sorts of secondary resources. We were contextualizing Indiana in the 19th century and particularly institutionalization, total institutions, Uh, the medicalization of women's bodies, all of these huge, very important issues with primary and secondary sourcing. And it turned out that the theories of myself and several of my academic colleagues, while they seemed to be very far-fetched at the time by our professors and outside help, all ended up proving to be true. And we realized we had uncovered a trove of information that nobody, including the historians, were aware of. And once again, you know, Dr. Kaufman puts her cape on and she uh, gets us to start presenting our research and the findings that we had at academic conferences. And so from the prison uh, via teleconferencing Skype, Uh, Myself and several other women were able to start giving presentations on our historical research and our finding to different conferences across the country. So so forgive me if we could go back here you are you know let's let's
2: sorry to remind you but let's remind our audience (laughs) that you're at this point still incarcerated woman um participating in this research project um you're presenting at conferences. Can can you talk
3: about a little bit about how are you presenting at conferences? (laughs) You're in prison. Uh, Yeah, we're teleconferencing. So uh, we're sitting in front of a camera hooked to a computer, and uh, they had a bridge link actually through IU that was linking us inside the prison to the universities or the lecture halls or the hotels or the conference centers or wherever these conferences were at, and we're being Skyped in. So we're live feed uh, via video conferencing into these conferences. Now, there were a few over time that, uh, and ironically, not always the prison, shooting it down. Occasionally, it was the conference venue themselves and said, no, nope, we're not going to do that. Uh, so there were a few conferences that we actually pre-recorded our session, and then our taped sessions of our presentations would be presented.
2: And, and, and Dr. Kaufman was really the one with her cape on that was able to <laughs> uh, get the Department of Corrections to agree to um, either be a live feed or a taped recording for you to present. I mean, that's that's huge. Would you say that that's typically what's happening? No,
3: absolutely not. Absolutely, okay. <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, the lady moved mountains, clearly. And, uh, you know, but we were under good administration at the time, too. You know, um, at that particular moment in time, the culture at IWP and IWP's administration was very pro-education. Uh, they were very pro what we were doing, uh, so let me just give a little shout out right now to Mr. Stephen McCully, who was our warden at the time, and he was on board for what we were doing. He believed in the work, he supported the work, and he was letting us do what we needed to do. So, and, and I'm so glad. Thank you for
2: um, for bringing that up. Um, and uh, Mr. McCully was was paramount in 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 allowing all of this to be going on and, and and not just to help you or the women that are involved, but it also is helping the country, helping everyone abroad to really understand uh, the history about what was going on and hear from such amazingly talented scholarly women um, who just happened to be uh, in a prison.
3: Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, I think this is one of the points we're trying to make now with the work is, um, you know, it's a little thing that Miranda Fricker and several other scholars have coined as epistemic privilege. And what epistemic privilege essentially means, at least in this context, is that we give validity to knowledge that comes from firsthand lived experience. Mm -hmm. So we are incarcerated people researching writing about, theorizing about, and critiquing the carceral state and the experience of incarceration from the inside out. And the reason we were able to uncover the things we've uncovered in our research is because of that lived experience. We were able to look at those documents and see things in the documents that the outsiders have chronically overlooked and missed, because they don't have that experience. And so it was actually our epistemic privilege in that standpoint of knowledge um, that really uh, added the fuel to the work. I mean, this was the meat and the substance underneath what we were doing and how we were able to do it. So if, if you hadn't been given that opportunity to study
2: and to do this research, um, if, if the women working on this project like yourself hadn't been given that opportunity, it may never have been uncovered because it took your lived experience to shape uh, your research and your ability to interpret the information. You agree?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm so pleased to tell you that our project has now begun to inspire other projects across the country. Uh, There are other women in prison up on the East Coast. There are men down in Florida. Uh, You know, there are several other places across the country now that are trying to emulate uh, the history project and what it is we've done. You know, really giving that validity to the person, living with the actual experience to be able to rewrite their own histories. So, uh, I mean, it's really monumental what's happened.
2: And going back to the opportunity part, Because again, it's it's not a given in this setting, right? You're you're in, you're in prison, so you're at the mercy of whatever staff wants to make available to you. So fortunately, during this time period, um, the the administration, as you say, so basically the the warden is the title given right now with the state of Indiana. So the warden of, of the prison was allowed to, was really given the authority to make those kind of decisions on what projects were allowed to be uh, pursued, what, what programs were available to, to each um, person that was incarcerated. Um, so it brings up an interesting point. For you, it, it didn't prove to be a barrier. It actually proved to be beneficial um, the person that was in that in that role. Um, going forward, though, that wasn't the case. As we know, um, during your incarceration even, uh, that administration changed, as, as it often does, um, throughout someone's time uh, at, at a facility or at sometimes multiple facilities. So you're really at the mercy of whoever's in charge well, of yeah. the facility.
3: Absolutely. I mean, at any given point in time, Uh, the plug could have been pulled on what we were doing. I mean, and you know this, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you function and you operate and you carry on with your research, with your studies, with what you're doing, knowing that at any given point in time, at any moment, the entire thing can be pulled. You know, in a way, I think I can't speak for everyone, but for me personally, it caused me to try to work at my maximum potential at all Mm -hmm. times because you never know when it's going to be taken and when it's going to be gone. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I think Dr. Kaufman's little experiment absolutely proved to be correct. I mean, she proved that women would do education solely for the purpose of education. I mean, none of us anticipated any of this amazing stuff happening later, and yet we did it anyway. and you know, part of the point we're trying to make now is that if you give people the opportunity nine out of 10 times, they will take it. They'll take it for the sake of knowledge alone.
0: Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. This set of interviews conducted on barriers to higher education is made possible by a grant from the Illumina Foundation. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our PO Box, KiteLine Radio, PO Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.